welcome to the Fracture Line, the official weekly news feed from the Chest Wall Injury Society, where we will listen to all the bottom line CWIS updates, shoutouts, fun facts, and weekly banner. I'm your host, Dr. Mark Crisco, and I'm joined always by Dr. Tom White, Dr. Adam Kay, and Sarah Ann Whitbeck. Welcome back to Fracture Line, everybody. I'm really excited to have on Rebecca Verdusco and Dr. Lisa McMahon. Before we start with the show today, I'd love to have you guys both introduce yourself. Uh, Lisa, why don't you tell us a little bit about your practice, where you are, and what you're doing right now? Sure, yeah. I'm a pediatric surgeon at Phoenix Children's Hospital, and I am the director of our chest wall clinic, and I do a lot of slipping rib, which is how I was introduced to you guys at CWIS. I think it's really cool that the adults are doing it too. I didn't learn about slipping rib until I did pediatric surgery training. So kudos to you guys for actually getting out there and learning about this and treating patients who have this. So I think it's super cool and I'm really excited to be here today. Awesome. We are too. Rebecca, tell us about your background, your story. So I am actually a registered nurse. I've been a nurse for um, 10 years. I started with Phoenix Children's a little bit over a year. I got my master's, so that's how I got the position. So I'm really helping, obviously, empowering um, all these families, especially when they have issues or concerns about any chest wall anomalies. So I can help him um, coordinate the care um, pretty much from the beginning to end. So thank you for having us today. Well, you know, the, the Internet has changed the game. These patients have found us, uh, which I think is probably more appropriate than us going and looking for them. Uh, many of us in the Chesswell Injury Society are seeing these patients on a fairly regular basis. And... Uh, we're not certain exactly how to manage these patients. I don't know if I want to spend a lot of time today talking about the actual technique of repair. I think we can save that for a future educational webinar or something. But I want to know the demographics of slip rib in, in pediatrics. Is it different than adult? You know, it's hard for me to say that um, since I... I get some adult referrals, but mainly it's, you know, we're a pediatric hospital, so the, the pediatric patients are seeking us out. For us, it's mainly adolescent teenage girls. The majority are female. They're generally super athletic. Not everyone is. And often, you know, they've been dealing with pain for a long time. I mean, these are kids who swim for hours a day. And so, I mean, I can't even imagine what that feels like, not being a super athlete myself. But we tend to push our children, I think, almost more than um, the adults. And they kind of act like almost like professional athletes when they're, you know, 14, 15. They're doing this hours and hours a day and still dealing with pain. And then once kind of the pain gets in the way of their, their sport, that's when they really start searching for answers and trying to figure things out. So I don't know if in the adult world, they're all super athletic or not, but definitely in the kids world, there are a lot of, of athletes. Yeah, they're definitely and, not all super athletic in the adult world. That's for sure. There is a predominance of females and, you know, there's a lot of speculation on why that might be, but tell us what you think the etiology of it is in, a, in an adolescent. Is it is it acquired condition because of their athleticism or are they born with this discontinuity of their ribs and they and it just manifests as they as they get older? How young does it happen? So, the the youngest report in the literature of somebody like knowing about this and like getting it treated as seven years old. And I think that's my youngest patient too, is seven. So how does it happen? I wish I knew. And I wish we had good epidemiologic studies that showed us, you know, what the percentage was in the population and so how we would know it. But I do know that just out of curiosity, I'll do my exam on everyone and kind of feel their lower rib cage. And I would say, it's probably like 30, 40% of kids that just, and they're they're really easy to palpate because they're nice and skinny yeah. and you can kind of feel their discontinuity. And I don't know if that's 
just, you know, a development thing. And it's usually bilateral. And even my patients that only have one sided pain, I can feel slipping ribs on the other side, they don't bother them. I'm like, great. Okay. So I, I think it's developmental in a lot of them. It just never the attachments just don't form. I think in a small percentage of cases, there's potentially like an overuse phenomenon, where the the attachments become disrupted over time. And that makes sense to me for the swimmers or the people who are doing the like repetitive motions over and over again. And, you know, occasionally there are folks that have an accident and then those pe people don't notice any pain until after their accident. And then we don't look for things like fractures that make the most sense, but, you know, not finding that if you can reproduce the pain by um, palpating their slipping ribs, then generally that's the diagnosis for them. But it's, it's really hard to say. I wish I knew. And I yeah. think that we need more, um, studies to find that out. Well, Maybe it's, it's multifactorial. The same in the adult world. We don't really know. It's it's more often unilaterally, at least clinically, for us. And many of these patients have some antecedent history of something. They got tackled vigorously with a and got a football helmet to the flank, or they they developed their pain during advanced pregnancy, or they had an operation, a, an open gallbladder, for example, and, and ever since then, they've, they've had this discomfort probably from trauma during retraction. So there's, there's usually some antecedent event, but not always. The numbers seem to match up. You know, we just published, well, not we, but several of the CWIS members just published a recent study, of, a cadaver study of slipped rib. The numbers were similar. 30% had this or, or more, actually. Correct me if I'm wrong, Dr. White. And um, we don't know why. Yeah. We don't know how it's developing. But just anecdotally, we're seeing thirty to, similar numbers, 30 to 40%. So Yeah, the anatomic laxity is quite common. Obviously, not all those patients have slip rib symptomatology, but predisposition is, is clearly very common. Tell us a little bit about the workup. And I, Rebecca, you're going to be involved in that, right? Because patients call in and you want to have them well prepared before Lisa sees them. What, what do you order, if anything? So technically, what we usually do, we follow up with the family and pretty much ask them questions. Um, so based on their symptoms, that's how we know if we need to um, actually order a dynamic ultrasound, pretty much like the standard um, test that we order for slip and rib patients. And then we have them do the consultation the very next day so that way they, the provider can review the results with them. Um, Obviously, during, like Dr. McMahon said, during the consultation, that's when she actually usually performs the exam. That's usually when they have the conversation about the results and everything, too. So that's how they determine if they're going to need the, the actual surgery. So, Lisa, I'm sure the diagnosis sometimes is absolutely obvious. It's clear cut. This is definitely a case. Let's get you on the schedule. But how often is it is it ambiguous or less than certain? And you have to do you temporize with those patients. Uh, how do you how do you manage that? Well, you know, every person kind of presents differently. And, you know, there's some folks that feel some slipping and popping and a little bit of pain every once in a while and are just worried and they want to make sure that they're not dying of something horrible. And so just reassuring them is enough, right? They, they don't need anything done, just some like typical rest, NSAIDs, ice, you know, take a break from whatever activity you're doing for a while, see if that makes it better. Then there are other people for whom, like you mentioned, that the folks that are kind of in between that we, you know, seem like they have a lot of symptoms, maybe we don't feel on exam their ribs slipping. Maybe we don't see on dynamic ultrasound anything that's abnormal, um, but they have like persistent complaints. Um, that's when I rely on my pain anesthesia colleagues and I have them, you know, evaluate them for a rib block and see if that gets better. And then there are other things that I just learned about maybe about five years ago from my anesthesia colleagues. There's this thing called acnes. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that or not, but it's abdominal cutaneous nerve entrapment syndrome. 
And it's basically an entrapment of a nerve through where it pierces through the rectus sheath and they have point tenderness um, on their abdominal walls. And that's something that generally surgery doesn't take care of. It's more of a, they can do injections and things like that. Um, but, you know, like looking for other things, other reasons for them having pain. And then, you know, they usually have to be in pretty severe pain, kind of unable to do their normal activities of life, have gone through conservative treatment, maybe even have, you know, had a million other tests done for workup. And those are the kids that I offer surgery to. So it's not everybody, but it's, it's definitely, you know, you have to decide and kind of make a good decision based on like what the family wants, what you think that you can do to help them, you know, those kinds of things. Right. Lisa, meet Dr. Adam K. Adam is one of our He's immediate past president of our society. He's a trauma surgeon in um, in Overland Park, Kansas, and he is one of the handful of us that is seeing these patients now on a regular basis. So uh, great, nice to meet you. How are you, Adam? Nice to meet you too. I'm all right. Just finished a very small umbilical hernia. It was a pediatric size one. Big case. <laughs> Hey, Dr. McMahon, I, I know we didn't want to talk too much about the case that you do perform, but I, I at least want to get it out there for the listeners. What is your go-to repair for these kids? So I pretty much do the same thing. The, the person who did the first slipping rib excision was in 1922, and they took out the cartilages from like a 42-year-old lady. And so that's, that's what I do. I'll make a little incision on the... Um, lower chest wall over the site where I feel the ribs slipping and then I find the slipping ribs after I divide the muscles and just go down and I take out the entire cartilage, the cartilages that aren't attached. And my my approach has changed some with time. Um, I used to do it more like a ravage and that's where you would leave the perichondrium intact. And now I take the entire cartilage with the perichondrium, leaving the neurovascular bundle in place. I think that people left the perichondrium before because they were worried about damaging that neurovascular bundle, but you can get it without hurting it pretty easily. Um, and then I had these patients that would have persistent pain after I took the after I did that procedure, which is kind of the gold standard procedure. And when I evaluated again, them again, their bony ribs were slipping. And so their bony ribs were actually doing the same kind of nerve, nerve impingement that their cartilages were doing. And so I started um, trying to figure out what I could do to keep that from happening. And I came upon these bioabsorbable plates. You know, I work with kids. I want things that aren't necessarily there permanently, but that can cause some scar tissue to happen because you only just need a little bit of kind of reinforcement to keep those bony ribs from abutting each other. And so I've been sewing in bioabsorbable vertical plates on a lot of these kids' rib cages um, on the bony ribs themselves to kind of keep them apart. And that's really, really helped to decrease the recurrence rate for my patients, at least. So when the plate goes away, the, some scar tissue is developed and so they, they stay separated? Or what's your speculation yeah. on the mechanism for improvement? I don't think that they stay as separated as they do when the plate's there, obviously. But yeah, my speculation is that there's some scar tissue that builds up and it's just enough to keep them from abutting each other from subluxing and impinging that nerve. Um, that being said, I have had now, I've done it for about four years. And so the plates are all the way gone in two years. And I've had two patients for whom the, as soon as the plates start going away, that's when they start having pain again. So I am looking for an alternative in, for those guys. It's not it's not every patient, but it's, it's a few patients. Are you changing your repair for your adult or adult-like patients? Or is it that same repair for the elder patients as well? I do the same one. I, I mean, we don't really operate on anybody more than like 25, 30. I think that that's probably the oldest that we've done. But yeah, it's the same repair. How big is your tribe, Lisa and Rebecca? How many pediatric slipping rib specialists are 
are there in the United States? I would say there are, well, I know that Dr. David Mooney at Boston Children's does this. Dr. Sean St. Peter at Kansas City does this. And I don't know the names of the new surgeons at um, Arkansas Children's that have, that are doing this now, but I know that there are surgeons there that do this. I know that there's a surgeon at Stanford who does it. So I think that there's probably a handful of us all together and definitely you know, we can all learn from each other and collaborate together. And I think sometimes we end up sharing patients too. Yeah. Have you, have you made any efforts to try to collaborate officially or to organize in, in a more formal way? Um, it's just at the beginning stages of that. Yeah. So with Dr. Mooney in Boston, we're um, kind of sharing patients back and forth and collaborating. My pain anesthesiology interventionist um, wow. trained at Boston Children's. And yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> He's great. And so, you know, we're looking into things that are a little different for kids who have either recurrent pain or have um, the need to to do something a little bit more intensive even before surgery, like RFA. Um, and we've done that for some folks. So it's a really kind of cool collaboration between us and Boston Children's and kind of both of us um, trying to figure out what the best way to help these kids is. And um, sometimes it's a lot of invention. Yeah. We understand making it up as you go along. That's pretty much how we run. That's certainly how this podcast goes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's good. One thing that I wanted to mention that I, I forgot to earlier, and you asked about kind of predisposing factors potentially for slipping rib. One thing that we've seen is that there are a lot of kids who have hypermobility syndromes that have slipping rib too. So, you know, whether they lack the attachment to start with, and then their hypermobility kind of shows itself on later on life that it contributes to this maybe maybe something that we see. I don't know if you see that in adults oh, or not. Absolutely. A significant number of these patients have some some type of hypermobility syndrome, either either named or otherwise, for sure. And the other thing that we see, and we have a big pectus program, so pectus excavatum, we do a lot of those operations. And we see this in conjunction with that, not infrequently. So it's not, um, they, they somehow go hand in hand. And then kids who have rib flare, so a chest wall, the lower chest wall that kind of sticks out a little bit, we'll see those folks have slipping rib too. So will you be in Barcelona for SeaWig? I will. Yeah, I will. And, no, and will hopefully we. you guys, yeah. September 14th yes. through 16th in Barcelona. Are you guys going to be there? Yeah, we're putting on a, a course, a rib fixation course. So awesome. we would invite you to uh, stay an extra day and join us at that course or, uh, you know, interact in some way. It'd be, that'd be, that'd be awesome. Awesome. Terrific. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, I'm on the executive committee for SeaWig, so nice. I would guess that I could talk to some of those guys and find out more information for you guys. You're putting it on in Barcelona? Yes. We are in conjunction. So Dr. Jose Ribas, I think we have a shared friend in, in Dr. Yeah. Ribas, who's one of our champion members. Um, and we do lots of research and collaboration with, with Dr. Ribas. Um, I know he's currently the president or incoming president, one of the two. Right. Um, with CWIG. And so um, we have a couple speakers from CWIS on the agenda um, on Friday. And then on Saturday, we're doing a, a course um, there with uh, the people who are presenting and then also um, hopefully some of the attendees. And so awesome. we'd be very excited. Yeah. Just getting really That's excited. That's really about that. cool. That's really, yeah. really great. It's nice to be able to do that. And, you know, occasionally we have this meeting in the States too. So it's not so hard to put on a course. Seawig folks are obviously the world's experts on reconstructing congenital chest walls. And I think there's enough overlap there, pathology and potentially techniques and certainly technology that we 
we could learn from each other. So that's sort of the idea, you know, the, this collaboration, this early collaboration. Oh, I, but I think something very similar could happen with juvenile slip rib and adult slip rib. I, I'm, I'm guessing that there could be a lot of potential cross crosstalk and education. So I'm excited about that. I am too. I'm really glad. You know, like I said before, I didn't know anything about slipping rib during general surgery training at all. And it wasn't until ped surgery that I learned about it. So we were only exposed. I was only exposed to it in kids. So it, I think it's really cool that you guys are doing it in adults because it certainly happens to adults. Now you guys have a meeting that I know Rebecca is, is working diligently on, right? And speaking of meetings in October, yeah. um, in beautiful Scott which is always a good good time and space to to be there I'm not sure um, how many of our listeners will will be directly within your audience so um, a good opportunity to to give a shout out in case they haven't already heard from you tell us a little bit more about what you're planning yes we are actually having uh, our advanced spectrus course um, this upcoming October the 13 and the 14 is gonna be a Thursday and Friday so in case there's any questions, I'll be more than happy to address those. They can always call me um, 602-933-4246. I'll be more than happy to help them with um, the registration process and everything for the conference. We're pretty excited about it. Yeah, and so this conference is um, for people who do chest wall surgery already and who want to hear about new and different techniques. And we have a a hands-on lab. Um, we'll be doing rib plating. We'll also be doing looking at the new kind of bars that are available for the NUS procedure and that, you know, I've used for chest wall reconstruction too. So just like you said that there's a lot of overlap um, that's potential, I think that we really, really need to collaborate because when we have things like big chest wall tumors that we need to resect, they're, you know, you guys are more expert and obviously do them more than we do, but um, I'm always calling my adult colleagues to find out kind of what mesh do you use and what plating systems are you using and what works best. And, and so um, I think it's super cool. And it sounds like there's probably a lot of overlap between our two courses, but if for folks who can't get to Barcelona, certainly this is, um, a little closer, maybe if you're in the western half of the states, or just want a little bit of a break in October. Yes. Well, we're we're in the process of assembling our program committee formally for our next year's meeting. We're only a month out from our last meeting, but uh, eleven months is hardly enough time to get ready for the next one. But we we certainly would entertain some sort of slip rib session, um, the panel, stump the experts kind of thing, maybe even a lab. And so um, we may be uh, calling upon you to uh, help us out with that. So no, I'd love to. I really appreciate you guys for joining us. That was incredible. Sarah Ann, do you have any updates for the week for us? I do. Um, keep your eye on the newsletter for this week. We have a lot of upcoming education in July. Um, in June, I know we took a, a little bit of a hiatus in terms of all we had was, or all we have in June is case review. So keep your eyes open for that June 22nd. Um, but July we have the, the full, um, the full gamut. So be sure to keep your eyes on the newsletter. Um, as Dr. White mentioned, the dates for the summit have been announced and the location will be confirmed, um, next week, the, the hotel. So you can start getting excited. Um, so April 27 through 29 in Charlotte, um, which is awesome. Um, we have um, space available or the executive committee is back to uh, reviewing applications for collaborative centers. We had this huge, you know, huge number of people that were all looking or that all submitted applications after the summit. So if you're um, back to, to interested, please let us know. 
Um, I know the other the other item that we discussed last week, but wanted to give a shout out because I had a couple questions was about SID, um, just about the contracting process. Um, it's not that it has to take three to six months because someone was asking the three to six months is just an average based on what we've seen with other hospitals and health systems. So it certainly can move faster on our end. We have a very standard template and it's um, designed to be international. So we've had um, an international attorney, um, you know, make sure that it meets GDPR um, and and multiple other local regulations for, um, uh, gosh, I think 13 different countries. He's already, um, made specific arrangements for for various countries so if you are interested please let me know we're we're ready it's just that the three to six month time frame that i quoted was typically what it takes the health the, the hospital and health system to to get up and running so this is your chance to get on board well let's move on to final stitch who wants to go first i'll go first i'm excited about the prospect of fixing slip ribs when they're adolescents and children so we don't have to see so many of them as adults <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna start fixing kids tom no 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 i no i think we found the person for that i just i just good one dr k you got a final stitch which of your kids are we on i'm trying to remember where we left off so um, i think i'm on amelia so amelia's i'm going from age order right here. so amelia's number three three of six um she is my most empathetic child She's gonna be the doctor. Um, she's the one who, uh, when I was a little, when I was, when she was young, I, if I hurt my leg, she would take a, uh, a baby wipe and use that to fix my boo-boos. So uh, that's my Amelia. So uh, she's doing aerials now, and she's doing some pretty cool things, falling out of the sky on uh, on the, on flowing uh, sheets of uh, scarlet of some sort. So. That's number three. We'll go on to four next week. It's very awesome. Nice. Very nice. That is very cool. Do you guys have a final stitch? Well, uh, mine's mine's pretty simple. I, I you know it's June. We're meeting that transition point to new residents and letting go of chiefs. And so I want to shout out to our two chiefs who are leaving us at Berkshire Medical Center, Jack Townsend and uh, Colin White. They did an amazing job this year. They're uh, talented surgeons, and I'm I'm excited for them both to move on. And welcome to the new interns. Uh, I hope you guys have fun for the next five years. I guess for me will be don't forget to register for the advanced spectros course. <laughs> if there's any questions about any Cheswell anomaly, I'm here for you guys. <laughs> yeah. I love it. You and our kindred spirits. And I'm really grateful for Rebecca. So Rebecca did come to us recently and she says it was her master's degree that got her the job. The master's degree definitely helped and it gave her more experience, but she's just an awesome person and we're really thankful for having her with us here at Phoenix Children's. Thanks. Good for you. That's awesome. <laughs> Very cool. My final stitch is actually about the database committee. We had database committee meeting this week. It was on Monday and we were talking about SID and updates that we're doing and some of the automation process. And it just, man, it just charged me up all over again about how, how awesome, you know, our, our database is and, and how exciting and, and cool. If you're not a part of it, this is, this is definitely a great time to, to get involved and just really got me all fired up again. So we have a really great database committee and I am super grateful for all that they do. So thank you, huge shout out to, to all that, that have contributed to it and all that continue to contribute to it. Thanks so much. Here, here.